for November 18th, 2015. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. David Murphy of St. Lawrence University about EROI, or Energy Return on Investment. Dave got his PhD under Dr. Charles Hall, who created the concept of EROI, and he has continued to explore work in that area as a professor in his own right. For listeners who are not familiar with EROI, here's a very brief primer. The concept of EROI is derived from ecology, but akin to the concept of ROI in finance. The return on investment, or ROI, is the ratio you get after dividing the returns from an investment by the amount you invested in it. Of course, it takes energy to produce energy. For example, a drilling rig looking for oil might be powered by a diesel engine. So the energy return on investment divides the energy returned from some energy production effort by the energy that went into that effort. This area of inquiry includes some other metrics like net energy, which, again, in parallel to the language of finance, is a calculation of the energy produced minus the energy invested, and so on. The point of having these metrics is that they can give us a way to evaluate how profitable a given fuel is, only in energy terms instead of financial terms. And while they may seem esoteric, these concepts are actually very important for those who would understand the likely trajectory of energy transition. First, EROI gives us a way of understanding the rate of change that energy transition must contend with. For example, In the early days of oil exploration a century ago, the EROI of oil was over 100. In other words, a unit of energy invested in an exploration delivered more than 100 units of oil energy produced. Today, as oil exploration has been forced to seek out more difficult, extreme, and remote reservoirs, the EROI of oil has fallen to less than 20. It now takes a lot more energy to produce a unit of oil energy than it did a century ago. And as we'll find out, that fact alone should lend some urgency to the project of energy transition because falling EROIs of fuels ultimately translate into slowing and even shrinking economies. But it also means that it's actually easier for lower EROI alternatives like wind and solar to displace oil today than it would have been a century ago. Second, it tells us something about the relative competitiveness of fuels. Obviously, if investing one unit of energy in the production of, say, shale gas gives you 20 times more energy return than investing that same unit of energy in the production of a solar panel, then shale gas is likely to have a competitive edge over solar. And third, it's important to understand EROI because transitioning from fuels with very high EROIs, like historical oil and gas production, to fuels with low EROIs, like solar PV, 
comes with its own set of challenges. It turns out that energy transition isn't simply about switching one source of BTUs for another. Now, comparing different fuels turns out to be a very difficult and tricky part of net energy and EROI studies, as we'll explore in today's interview. But for now, we should just bear in mind that creating energy policy and investing in energy production and transition really should take EROI into account along with other more conventional metrics because EROI ultimately helps determine ROI, the profitability of an energy endeavor. It can also be difficult to relate EROI to ROI empirically, but on the other hand, I don't think anyone would say they're unrelated either. I explored some research on that subject in a 2012 article titled What EROI Tells Us About ROI, which we'll link to in the show notes. So without further ado, let's bring David Murphy into the conversation. Welcome, Dave, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. So before we dive into the hard questions here, maybe you could just give listeners a bit more context about where net energy and EROI studies fit into the body of knowledge about energy. While this area of inquiry borrows from the language of finance and economics, it actually emerged from the field of ecology. And the intellectual giants in that field, researchers like Howard Odom and Herman Daly and Charles Hall, were all originally ecologists, I believe. So briefly, what's the connection between ecology and energy, especially the economics of energy? Yeah. So ecology developed, you think of ecology as being this like kind of established discipline, but the reality is ecology developed from biology in really the 20th century and really hit its stride in the mid 20th century. So we're talking like the 1940s and 50s. And one of the big researchers is this guy, Howard Odom, and his brother, Eugene Odom, has a school named after him in Georgia. And Howard Odom was big in Florida, North Carolina. So a really good brother, a uh, pair of academics there. But Howard Odom focused on systems ecology. And what he kind of studied and what his passion was, was was figuring out how energy flowed through natural ecosystems from the solar energy that would hit the ecosystem and how that kind of was transferred through the different trophic levels from the phytoplankton or the primary producers to the primary consumers and so on and so forth. And then he started to study human-dominated systems in the economy and seeing how energy would flow through that and drawing parallels between the two. And one of his students was Charlie Hall. And Charlie Hall wrote a thesis in 1970 that, that looked at energy flow in a stream in North Carolina. And what he compared was the energy cost of migration of these fish within the stream to the energy that they kind of gained by migrating and accessing new food resources, either upstream or downstream or whatever the case may be. And that was really the first energy return on investment analysis that was published in ecology, right? Because the energy return would be the new food source that the fish access and the energy cost would be the actual cost of migration. So you put that in a ratio and you get an energy return on investment number, right? The energy gained divided by the energy cost. Then Charlie Hall, who was my PhD advisor started in the 70s, started to look at human-dominated systems with the ROI. And the first published value, I think, was like in the late 1970s. And then there was a paper in 1981 in science where it really came into kind of the, the general public's eye. And, and the idea is very simple. How much energy does it cost to produce energy out of the ground? And I think they focused mainly in the beginning on fossil fuels, predominantly oil, and seeing that, you know, when we search for oil, we get a lot of profit energy. You know, you get 40, 50, 60 barrels of oil out for every barrel of oil invested. And those are the kind of returns that make Wall Street kind of jealous, right? So that's really how it hit its stride and where it kind of evolved from in ecology. Oh, that's interesting. I actually didn't know a lot of that. It's interesting how those fields have tied together that way. 
So the kind of work that you've been doing is now beginning to coalesce under headings like ecological economics or biophysical economics. What is the state of these new fields and what do these new approaches hope to accomplish? That's, the, yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, I'm a young academic, so to me, sky's the limit. If you talk with some of the older academics, I think they're, <laughs> that they've been in the game a little longer. They're, um, I'll give you a little more jaded answer. Yeah, exactly. There might, there might be some asterisks involved or something. But I think ecological economics was founded. And if you re- actually, it's a really kind of poignant question because I just came back from the United States, the meeting of the United States Society for Ecological Economics, which was merged with a Canadian society out in Vancouver like a month ago. And as I was on the plane ride out there, I was reading all of the original papers in ecological economics from the 1980s. And the journal was of ecological economics started in the early 90s. And I was reading these because we're now in the kind of the beginning stages of forming biophysical economics. And by we, I mean Charlie Hall, who I was speaking about earlier, who was my advisor and I and some other people are, are doing this thing called biophysical economics. And the early papers in ecological economics were really kind of searching for the answer to what is ecological economics. And, you know, they're basically discussing how it's a systems-based science and things. It's not ecology, it's not economics, it's ecological economics, which I thought was like just as vague as saying <laughs> it's either of those two separately. I didn't really understand that. But yeah. in the beginning, it was about, if you read the first Costanza paper that says like, Robert Costanza published in, in the journal says, what is ecological economics? The entire paper is about limits. And, and it's not as kind of stark as the limits to growth. It's not a hugely pessimistic kind of paper in the, in the sense that the limits to growth kind of spelled like, you know, ecological disaster and, and, you know, was very Malthusian in that sense. But it did discuss limits and said that natural systems have limits, right? Have built-in checks that don't allow them to grow forever. And this is kind of one of the fundamental tenets of ecological economics in the way we believe the economic system must also be limited at some level. And, and so that was, what is that? That's 20 years ago, 25 years ago now. And over the past 10 years, 15 years, ecological economics has really grown in popularity, a lot due to the advancing of ecosystem service analysis, which is basically putting, I'm generalizing here, but what seems to be the strongest kind of vein of analysis within ecological economics right now is putting dollars on ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is fraught with danger, I think. And that's kind of led to some fractioning within the ecological economics kind of world. And some of the bigger people that are involved, that were involved in the beginning, aren't so involved anymore because of that. And biophysical economics was not so much in an answer to that trend within ecological economics, but in, I guess in some ways it was, but that wasn't the intention. The intention was really just to use science and systems analysis to study economics and economies as they are, right? To, to just look at data and see how these things are related rather than come up with theories on how they might be. So, so, really so more t- of a kind of a pure science of study or observation rather than an application for policy purposes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it very much would – I'm trying to write this paper right now on what are like the theoretical foundations of biophysical economics. But one of them for sure are kind of the laws of thermodynamics, which are, you know, energy can't be created nor destroyed and that we lose energy every time we convert it. And, and these two kind of just spell limits. And you talk about the energy system, right, and energy – kind of powering the economy. We can't create it, right? And this is especially important with fossil fuels, what some people tend to forget is that they're non-renewable. And once we burn them, they're gone. We're using that, we're turning it into waste heat, and that energy's gone forever. 
So that's kind of at the macro level. At the micro level, we're doing some interesting things trying to relate like energy return on investment to profitability. And that would be kind of the biophysical economics version of ecosystem service analysis in that like ecosystem services is a microeconomic analysis within ecological economics. In biophysical economics, we're not doing that type of work. What we're doing is trying to relate like energy return on investment and biophysical analyses and just try to come up with correlations with, you know, does that actually like correlate to firm profitability? And that research is like very nascent. I can't really say any trends have emerged, but I think it's a really interesting area nonetheless. Yeah, no, I do too. And it's one of the main reasons I want to get into that. I want to address EROI in this podcast because I think it's, it's an important question with respect to energy transition as to where the profitability really is. Yeah. So many of our listeners might be familiar with life cycle assessment, which is an approach that tries to assess the environmental impacts of a product's cradle to grave impacts. How is net energy analysis similar to or different from life cycle assessment? You know, life cycle analysis is a methodology and net energy analysis is a methodology as well. I would say that biophysical economics is something that could have like a theoretical foundation. Net energy analysis is just determining what the net energy profitability is or something like that of some sort of system. So it's just a method of accumulating costs and looking at the energy profits. Life cycle analysis emerged, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And what basically happened was that a bunch of engineers wanted to codify and really solidify a methodology for figuring out what the environmental impacts of producing stuff actually is. Without just saying like, oh, if we burn a gallon of gasoline, we get X amount of greenhouse gases out, right? So that's part of it. But the gasoline doesn't just exist there and it's not just ready for you to burn, right? It has to be extracted from the ground and then transported to a refinery, refined, and then it's transported again to the place where it's finally consumed. So there's all these other upstream costs that are an environmental impact that aren't necessarily accounted for or weren't early on. So life cycle analysis emerged as this kind of like way to look at this called cradle to grave, right? So what are the costs starting with the product in the ground, right? So starting with the original resource of just like oil in the ground. And that's just one example. Companies use life cycle analysis now for anything. You know, they look at their product design and product manufacturing and their supply chain, and they look at where the greenhouse gases are being consumed the most or where the water is being consumed the most. So, so life cycle analysis now emerges as a huge discipline. There's huge conferences every year. There's a bunch of different softwares that are used to do this. But the interesting thing, when they're doing these life cycle analyses, you can imagine that accumulating all of those costs upstream is incredibly tiring, right, <laughs> in terms of workload. And you have to get so much data and you have to catalog all this stuff that they started doing it in a very formal way so that there's now these enormous databases out there of just what the costs are of different things in terms of dollars, in terms of like kilograms, in terms of greenhouse gases. They're called life cycle inventories. And this is particularly useful for the net energy community because the way we learned how to do all energy return on investment is to go out there into the literature, find the cost of something like, oh, I see that they do X amount of truck trips for a shale gas well. Okay, well, if they do X amount of truck trips and we assume 50 miles per truck trip, we can figure out the energy cost that way, right? And we just kind of build it in Excel and it's like, it's messy and very kind of data intensive. So we still have to do some of that now, but we can also utilize these huge databases so that we don't have to go out and search for the energy costs of refining crude oil into gasoline. We can go to a database and find not only 
that cost, but a regionally specific one, right? So what does it cost in like Texas to do that versus, you know, mm -hmm. Germany or something like that? Mm -hmm. And you can just utilize these resources and then build your model. So that's a kind of a long way of saying that the net energy analysis world is in many ways now merging at least methodologically with life cycle analysis because we can do all of the net energy analyses within their framework right. and utilize all their big data. Right. So that's kind of the way it's merging right now. Interesting. So let's get into some of the hard questions. So based on the research of people like Cutler Cleveland and Robert Costanza and Charlie Hall and you, we know that fossil fuels used to have much higher EROIs than they do today, and that the project of energy transition imagines replacing some of those high EROI fuels with low EROI renewable fuels. So just to put a few stakes in the ground then, let's put some numbers out there. What is the average EROI of conventional oil and gas right now? The most recent numbers put it probably in the mid-teens. All these numbers have ranges, or at least should be published with ranges, right. and the range would go from about 11 to 20 for conventional oil and gas, with air bars that exceed that, of course, but that would be where the mean would probably lie for conventional. So 11 would be what, like a deep water project and 20 would be maybe? No, deep water would definitely be in the 9, 10, 11 range. And I wasn't thinking to deep water even as conventional. You know, and then Saudi Arabia, of course, would be on the other end of the spectrum, up right. about 20, 30, something like that. So those are the bounds of that. Okay. So what about unconventional oil and gas, like using fracking? What kind of EROIs are we getting from Oh, that? man. Well, that is a sticky wicket right there. How do we... <laughs> so <laughs> the research is just coming out on this right now. Yeah. And I'm not sure it's published, so I can't quote the reference or anything. But the, the numbers that are going to be published show that it's pretty high. But there's a lot more to these numbers than just looking at them and taking them at face value, right? So, Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of a surprising finding because, you know, we all know that it's a high cost source of oil. And that's because it requires all this additional effort and inputs of energy. It requires all right. this water and sand to be trucked in and all this fracking energy to right. be spent fracturing the rock and so on. Like... It's kind of surprising that if you have to do all that extra stuff, which is expensive, that it would not translate to a lower EROI. You know, I think it will. I think if the shale plays is, and that's what I'm talking about when you talk about like unconventional oils, I'm just talking about shale oil right now. The tar sands in bitumen develop in northern Canada has very low EROI. That's like way below 10. I think the published numbers are three to six. Wow. So that's an incredibly capital-intensive, infrastructure-laden industry. And you can see they're, they're kind of like the marginal producer today, right? Because, you know, as soon as the oil prices drop below $80 a barrel, they just shut in production as quickly as possible, much like the shale plays have actually, or at least tried to. Yeah. So anyway, that, that would be the tar sands. You know, look at the Bakken, which is you know, kind of the poster child for shale oil now. And so the numbers are pretty high, but it's really kind of like the conventional oil industry just in hyperdrive. The depletion rates are so fast, right? And, and you have to keep putting in so many new wells to maintain production levels that it is capital intensive, but you're exploiting the best resources, right? And you're getting some decent returns. I mean, they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't making money on it, right? So it's obviously financially profitable, and I think in the beginning, these wells are just good enough where they're getting a lot of oil out. The question that I don't have an answer to, and I'm not sure the, the literature is addressed yet, is how quickly those decline, not just like 
a year after year decline per well changes, but like how quickly are the initial production rates that they're getting going to change over time? In other words, mm. how big are the sweet spots in these plays and or how small are they, right? right. And because if that declines, all the energy return, and this is our shale gas analysis has shown this, 99%, at least in gas, 99% of the, of the energy is coming out is out of that well in five, six years. Right. So if you cut the production, the initial production levels, if, you, if that starts to decline by half, you're getting an exponential decrease in the amount of production of oil or gas, right? So the energy return on investment numbers are pretty high right now, but they could change much more quickly than you'd expect in conventional oil, where the wells actually will last for 20, 30 years. So. Right, exactly. So the EROI numbers, if we had them from, say, three years ago, when wells were coming on with initial production rates of 1,200 barrels a day or whatever, would have been considerably higher, maybe, than, than the EROI numbers for, those, for that same territory would be two years from now, probably higher than it is even today, even though with the decline of oil prices and the shale producers really focusing on the sweet spots of so-called high grading their efforts to really avoid uh, having to totally shut down production and just keep it flowing from the very most productive wells. Even there, you know, even in the sweet spots, we're, we're now seeing IPs in the range of like, you know, 600 barrels a day. Yeah, so we're it, already well below the IPs that we were getting a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I teach this to my students and, well, there's a couple of things. The data you'll see a bit of a learning curve with these plays, right? So the, the initial productions will creep up for the first year, two or three years or four years or whatever as they figure out what they're doing. So Right, so there's the counter trend there is that, you know, there's a learning curve and the numbers would actually go up. Yeah, but once they peak out and they start to decline, that's not because they need to learn anything else, right? That's because they're just hitting worse plays. Exactly. The way I like to put it is that technology wins over geology for a while, yeah. but geology always wins in the end. That's right. And you know what, what a lot of people don't understand about the shale, and, and I tell my students this, is that it is such an impermeable rock that the oil and gas is literally trapped in there. That's why we have to crack it to get any of that stuff out. And you can't produce from an area that isn't fracked, right? If you don't get the crack and the fissure in there, the oil cannot migrate. Whereas in a conventional play, you could drill down into the rock and, you know, it's like a really like oil-soaked brick or something and there's just huge holes in it and and the oil and gas can flow through that. Um, you don't have any of that in shale. So that's why the geographic implications, I think, are even more impressive when you look at shale gas because you can assume that where that well is is only draining this exact spot given the horizontal leg, you know? And then right. that's why they have all these legs radiating out from each well. So it really is like a best first example of like, we're going to hit this area because we have the best results. And once we're done, we have to move elsewhere. And as soon as those initial production numbers start going down, it'll be because of geography and the fact that they're just running out of the best resource. Yeah. So studies, switching away from oil and gas now, studies on the EROI of solar and wind are much newer, but what have those early studies shown? Well, they've advanced in the past few years. Well, let me answer the question first. PV and wind, wind for sure has an energy return on investment up probably at 20 or above. That's for just you know standard commercial scale wind projects. I don't, I'm not talking about micro wind or anything like that, right. but your standard two megawatt turbine or something like that is easily at 20 to 1 right now. So that'd be one unit of energy invested for 20 out, which is, you know, on par with oil and gas. With the good yeah, conventional Yeah, with the oil. good stuff, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
And PV is creeping up around 10 right now. That's the most recent estimates from, from some of the other academics in the literature. Such as? Marco Raget has been doing a lot of the work yeah. on this. And he had a paper published in, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. I can't help you there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, there's a lot of vowels. In only yeah, there classes. really are. Yeah. Makes it difficult. But he's a good guy. And he published in uh, Energy Policy in 2012, I think was his. So that was even a few years ago now. But there's a, a lot of advancement in the, in the renewable energy world right now, as, as you know. What's really interesting about watching these is not so much what the static number is. Like that just gives you a snapshot. But looking at the trends and where we expect the trends, what are the limits on the EROI and how do we expect that to change and therefore change the EROI in the future? And if you look at PV and, and wind, well, wind is already kind of successful, right? That technology works as long as you're in a, a good spot for it. You have mm-hmm. the wind speed. And we're not at a point right now where we're running out of those spots. No. With PV, it's really technology, right? Yeah. So with PV, the, the values are coming up to about 10 to 1 right now was that Rauget number I was quoting. And what's limiting that technology is, or what has been in the past was, you know, the efficiency of panels and the manufacturing of panels. And as you get economies of scale, more people producing them, those all come down. So these are all things that I guess there's a long way of saying that, that we expect the cost for renewable energy to decrease, which is the opposite trend you see in the fossil fuel industry, coal, mm-hmm. natural gas, oil. They're not finding East Texas again, right? That's just off the table. Right. Those numbers are not going back up again. No, they're not. And even shale, oil, gas, if they're high right now, let's look at them again in five years. You know, there's, right. th- this is as high as they're going to get, right? There's only yeah. a downward trajectory to all of them. The question is how quickly are we going down that path? Right. So you have opposite trends. And, you know, 10 years ago, we were at the point where the numbers for renewables didn't match up very well with that of fossil fuels. They were still going up, but they're still pretty low. At least PV was. But there's been a lot of change. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, they're not exactly perfect comparisons. Intermittency being a big kind of factor. It's not exactly the same type of energy source. It's totally different if you think of oil coming out of the ground. But even if you burn that and create electricity with it, in theory, you can do that kind of constantly, whereas wind and PV are, are intermittent. And therefore, you have the question of, do we have to include battery backup in the grid to make these numbers actually yes. actually work? Because not a lot of that has been done in the literature. Well, there's certainly been some papers I've seen that have insisted that it is necessary to include all of that. And I, I violently take issue with that. And I feel like that's one of those points, sort of a methodological issue that really needs a lot more investigation and, and a lot more explication and discussion before we just assume that that's going to be part of it. Is your objection due to the fact that we're not sure how much battery backup we would need, if any, if we rejig the grid correctly? Or Well, I'm Absolutely. And also because there's storage is not just batteries, right? Right. There's all different kinds of storage. Right, right, right. And then in addition to storage, you have other technologies. You have demand response, (laughs) you have load shifting, and you have all these other things. So what these studies that I've seen really tried to do, where they tried to include batteries as the only storage mechanism and include that to basically 100% of the load is absolutely a worst case analysis. And I could come up with a different construction of that same problem. 
where maybe the battery quotient that needed to be priced in to this whole equation was maybe 10% of what they're assuming. I agree completely with you. Just call it a forecast, you know, or, or at least cast it that way so that it's not assumed to be the an actual number yeah. of like an existing system, right? Where, you know, you can compare oil and natural gas and, and catalog all the values, but we're doing that based on values we collect in situ, right? From these producers or from the EIA or whatever, it's another thing completely to adopt a cost metric for a battery that could conceivably be used as grid storage and then backing it up to 100% is kind of totally crazy. I don't think anybody's ever really considered that as a, as a future. So Right. So where this is all heading, of course, is we're trying to ultimately compare the EROI of different fuels as a clue to what they can tell us about the future of energy transition, right? How much energy transition we can really hope to achieve, how much renewables we can really hope to displace fossil fuels. I mean, that's that's where this is all going. But when you get into these comparisons, there's just a minefield of issues out there. So let's talk about some of those methodological issues around comparing the net energy of different fuels. So in reviewing academic papers on EROI some years ago, I often objected that they were doing apples and oranges comparisons because the boundaries of analysis were different for different fuels. So for the EROI for coal at the mine mouth, for example, can't be directly compared to the EROI of a solar module, which is putting electricity directly into the grid. It's in a totally different place than a mine mouth. And the EROI of coal at the mine mouth is totally different from the EROI of coal after it's burned in a power plant, and the theoretical EROI of a generic solar panel fresh out of the manufacturing plant is different than the actual EROI of a specific kind of solar module after 40 years in the Arizona desert, you know, a very specific place <laughs> yeah, right. and time. Yeah. Uh, and, and then how are we to compare all these different numbers on an equal basis? So now it seems the academic community is beginning to address those issues. How are they doing it? Well, the net energy world is as I said before, was kind of an amalgamation of people that are environmental scientists or engineers that kind of develop their methods their own way. And by adopting this kind of rigid LCA framework, there's been a lot more consistency recently in the analyses of, of energy return on investment have been published. The issue that you just described, right, this whole kind of apples and oranges thing and all the different permutations and different kinds of apples and oranges that you could compare, right? right. That was one of the kind of major reasons that the LCA world kind of got started, right, was to make sure that these kind of comparisons between different production chains were, were comparing apples to apples and different same boundaries in the system and all of that. And I think it was just kind of due to the fact that the net energy world didn't emerge out of ecology, right? It didn't emerge out of the engineering or life cycle analysis community that we didn't have kind of a rigid framework for this. But as I said, a lot of the analyses are going in that direction. And one of the important things there is that you have something called a functional unit. And you have to state your boundaries. You have to scope the analysis. So an actual life cycle analysis paper that calculates energy return on investment, if they use the LCA framework, all of that important information will be in the paper. You're never going to get all the values to be exactly the same with all the same boundaries. What's important is that they're published with the boundaries stated clearly so that you know what they're talking about. And the big problem we had was that this is a very data-intensive process. So when we're producing numbers of like coal energy return on investment at the mine mouth, we're scraping to find all of the data to get this done. A lot of the times, almost all the time, it's data limited, right? Well, right. We, we didn't assume that, but we didn't include that cost because, frankly, we couldn't find any data for it or the data we found was suspect right. for this reason or that, right? 
So the LCA world is kind of fixing two things or helping at least fix two things. One is the rigid methodological framework. The other is this huge lifecycle inventory that I was talking about that has like all of these databases in it that we can now access or at least pay to access as the case is. And I think that's allowing for more detailed and apples to apples comparison. So so the analysis we're producing right now for shale gas produces three different energy return on investment values. One is at the well gate. So what is the energy return at the well? What is the energy return after processing the gas? And what is the energy return after you've burned it and created electricity with it? And it's that third one that I think is in particularly important because that's a megawatt hour into the grid is our functional unit, right? So we're doing the analysis all the way to the boundary of getting a megawatt or kilowatt hour, whatever, into a grid. And that number can be compared against PV, which is the only output of PV can be a megawatt hour into the grid. Yep. We, we can't compare that number, comparing a PV megawatt hour into the grid to a megajoule of shale gas coming out of the well pad is incomplete. And that's the, the apples to oranges mistake that we right. can't make anymore. Or a megajoule of coal sitting in the ground. Yeah. No, I mean, right. the, no, you can't do that. And yeah. So you feel like this functional unit insistence is starting to clear up some of those problems or at least provide a basis that things can be more accurately compared to each other. Yeah, it certainly is. We can utilize it now, right? I mean, I spent years doing these energy return on investment analyses, and now I've spent the past year and a half learning a lifecycle analysis software just because that's the way all of these analyses are done. If you do a greenhouse gas analysis for any product, you have all of the data needed to produce the energy return on investment. They're just more interested in greenhouse gases. So there's this incredible resource out there where we can put these numbers together more consistently than we have in the past. And we, we have to take advantage of that. And, mm. and following the framework is doing this kind of functional unit analysis, right? So it doesn't mean that everybody that does a shale gas EROI will produce megawatt hour into the grid. Maybe they'll do megajoule of gas off of the well pad. But the point is, it'll be stated there. And then, you know, at some point, there's a user competence that has to factor in. Like, you know, whoever's reading these articles has to be like, okay, well, that's the well pad and this one's into the grid. These numbers are incompatible. Yeah. Right? But yeah, I think at this point, we have to stop writing papers that might compare coal and gas and oil if they're not talking about the same unit. At least the same kind of functional unit, let alone the same boundaries. So how does your new study help us to compare shale gas to wind or solar? Well, just by doing that, I mean, there's been a couple of shale gas estimates that are out there. And one of them was like, they all provided a range. I think it was like 70 or 80 to one was one of the values. I think that was the Alcott and Melillo paper. And then there's another paper that had, had it in the teens or maybe 20 to one. Those are basically the two papers that were out there. But both of them measured at different boundaries and didn't take it to actually produce electricity, right? The first one was, I think, just at the well pad. The second one, I think, did processing, which is why the numbers are lower. So they added in cost but didn't add any gas out, obviously. So you add more cost and the EROI goes down. You can just kind of picture it. They're just expanding the boundaries, right? The first paper had the tightest boundaries on the well pad. The second one had processing. So we've taken that step further now taking that gas into a pipeline and put it into a natural gas combined cycle electricity producing facility and produce the electricity. And then we looked at the electricity megawatt hour into the grid. So that was the final boundary of our analysis. And we compared that to all the costs to getting it there. And our values, you know, we have three different numbers depending on the, the amount of gas that's produced from the well. It's about 10. 
is what it is. So it's about equal to PV right now, which is kind of interesting. I just want to clarify. So in this paper, you and your co-author, Devin Moeller, mm-hmm. yep. you've looked at the EROI of shale gas from the Marcellus play in Pennsylvania specifically. Right. Yeah. Specifically the Marcellus. Okay. Yep. And so this EROI value of 10 that you found roughly, is that the final EROI when, when the gas is actually converted to electricity at the power plant in a combined cycle turbine? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's right. So, you know, it's funny too, if you look at the other values that we calculate, we, as I said before, we calculate three, one at the well gate, one at the processing gate and one at, at, at the power plant. At yeah. the power plant. The first number mirrors the Ocot and Malillo number, which is the number that they calculated at the well gate. So we got a really high EROI. Which was like what? Like 60, 70 to 1. I oh, mean, wow. like okay. at the well pad, that's yeah. the gas coming out. Right. But what we have to understand here is, that, first of all, there's two things. One is that this gas has even sharper decline rates than the Bakken, right? And, sure. and so all of the stuff that we talked earlier about, about the Bakken and how those numbers may change very quickly, all of that just applies in maybe even more extreme way to the Marcellus and the gas plays. Right. But secondly, and this was the problem, right? If you look at, if you just report that first number, you're like, oh my gosh, like shale gas is so much better than PV because we get an energy return of 70 to 1 when PV, we get 10 to 1. Why wouldn't you go with that, right? right. But they're fundamentally different products. Nobody's yeah. consuming the gas at the well pad, right. right? It's supposed to go through all of this dewatering and then it has to be processed even further and then it has to be pressurized, put in the pipeline. It's going to be shipped however many miles and then it's got to be finally burned. And that's the thing, right? Yeah. Burning a fuel to produce electricity is incredibly inefficient. Yep. You're lopping off to your your best power turbines are what forty percent efficient. Yeah, I mean, forget it. Yeah. So you can manage to up the efficiency of some of these if you do combined heat and power, utilize some of the heat. But the reality is, burning gas to produce electricity is 40 percent efficient. Yeah. So that megajoule is coming off of the well pad that gave us that seventy to one. You know, two thirds of those are gone up the chimney at at a power plant. You know, as waste heat. Right. So you only get in a third of that. And that's why the EROIs can decrease so quickly when you go to the grid level, because for any fossil fuel, coal is even less efficient than gas. Two thirds of the energy content of whatever gets to the power plant is gone before you get it into the grid. So it makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. So the approach that you've taken here, comparing megawatt hour to megawatt hour for power for shale gas or wind or solar or whatever, that absolutely seems like the right idea to me because that's an apples and apples comparison of end uses rather than sources. That makes sense. So this is on a somewhat related but different subject. This is similar to the energy returned on capital invested, the EROCI metric that Mark Lewis has been working on, which we discussed in the previous episode of this podcast. With that metric, Mark is comparing not just grid power, but mobility and looking at the financial investment required to run transportation as well as the energy input. So he's saying, you know, if you take a certain amount of petroleum and you turn that into gasoline and you use that to power a car and you get so many miles out of that, what would be the financial investment required to obtain that many miles versus the investment that you would need to make in, say, a wind farm or a solar system that would produce electricity and drive an electric vehicle to give you the same mobility? And what would be the financial investment required to do that on both sides? You know, I I think both examples are the right way to compare the fuels. It's by the energy they deliver at the end use or really, in this case, maybe more accurately, not just the energy, but the actual utility 
not by the primary fuel consumed because the energy is useless until it gets used. And in a natural gas-fired power plant or an internal combustion engine, you're dealing with a very inefficient device that is throwing away most of the original energy as heat, as we just discussed, whereas with wind and solar, you're not. You're able to use nearly all of the original energy at the wall socket or to push a vehicle down the road. So as you and I have discussed for years, there's always this boundary problem. You know, what did you count? What did you leave out? At what point in the value chain of a fuel do you start counting its EROI? And even just looking at a single fuel, let's say natural gas, you can get a very different EROI depending on the ultimate use. So you could have one EROI if natural gas were burned in a 40% efficient power plant, and another EROI if that same natural gas were burned in a nearly 90% efficient furnace to heat a home or a combined heat and power unit, and then another EROI if the natural gas were reformed in a fuel cell and used to send a car down the road. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think it's really so important to compare things at the final use. But anyway, I've kind of rambled on a little bit here, but I, I wondered if you, you know, had any thoughts about Mark Lewis's approach here with the energy return on capital invested. I think it's a really good idea. I mean, I think in some ways it could be more useful because getting financial investment data is generally easier than getting the energy equivalent of that. Yeah, no, 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 no argument there. Yeah. So if you can find a way to make a meaningful analysis using that data because it's easier to acquire, it would really just elevate the robustness of the analysis because you, you just have better data. He's going to run into the same issues that the AROI and the LCA community run into of boundaries and all that stuff. And you just have to be consistent and make sure that you're using the same the same boundaries when you're making comparisons between fuels and state your assumptions and things like that. So I, I think it's really interesting. I don't know. The end user comment you made is interesting in that, you know, I think it is valuable that you have the same functional unit. Whether or not that functional unit is the end user or not is not necessarily the most important thing in my book because I think it's really important. You know, as I said, the biophysical economic community is kind of looking at this energy return on on investment and profitability of firms and things like that. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is comparing the EROIs at different boundaries, right? So like, let's just look at shale gas, for instance, right? Where you have super high energy returns at the wellhead, but by the time you put that into the grid, it's decreased a lot. Well, is there any knowledge to be gained by comparing the energetic profitability of the actual production process, the transportation, pro like how that changes as you do the production, as you include transportation, as you include kind of the combustion of that fuel? And how does that relate to different corporations, whether they're producers or the, whether they're involved in pipelines and transportation or whether they're actual utilities burning the fuel, right? So I think as long as you're making kind of similar comparisons, it's okay as long as you have the same boundaries and things we've been talking about this whole time. But I think there's value to be gained in using tighter boundaries sometimes. Kind of depends. But I think his ideas, to go back to Mark's ideas, is phenomenal. And I, I can't wait to see more of that stuff being produced. You, you and me too. I mean, I guess the reason why I'm trying to emphasize the end use aspect is because I think, I think it gives us a way to make EROI more policy relevant. You know, because yeah. if, if we can bring these ideas together, both the end use EROI data and the EROCI metric that Mark has been developing to help policymakers and long term investors identify the most energy and capital efficient paths to energy transition. I mean, I think that's what we're really after here, because at some point 
all of this information needs to inform policy. And that's always been the sticky right. wicket for EROI studies, hasn't it? I mean, it shouldn't have been. As, no. I wrote, as I wrote in my aforementioned piece, anyone who understood the EROI of corn ethanol could have known a decade ago that it would be a money loser. Oh, man. Before we poured 20 <laughs> billion tax dollars into it. Yeah, uh, no, you know, I agree. Uh, the writing was on the wall in the EROI data, but the policymakers haven't yet used these kinds of metrics to form policy. So, right. so can you make a case for using EROI as a useful and relevant metric for policy? I think that's what we're trying to do here. Absolutely. And I think corn-based ethanol is a perfect example, right? I mean, if we had some sort of like EROI threshold that had to have been met by, you know, our energy technology, we never would have invested in corn-based ethanol. It was a loser from the beginning energetically. Yeah. And I think it stems from this. At some level, for something to be profitable without subsidies and without financial machinations, right? Let's just say something just be straight up profitable. It has to be energetically profitable, right? You have to get some sort of energy benefit or energy profit to get the monetary profit. Yeah, at, at minimum. At, at minimum, right? right. So corn-based ethanol, I, as I published in 2011, if you actually look at the data and you aggregate all of it and you aggregate the error along with all the data going into it, the values we came up with were indistinguishable from one to one. Basically, we couldn't even assert that it was one greater than one or less than one. That's how narrow the range is. And that's mm -hmm. why the industry has floundered, right? They were stuck between oil prices and corn prices. And it was like, yeah. and it was a loser from the beginning. And then they came out with a renewable fuel standard where they say, we're going to convert all this to miscanthus and all, this, <laughs> all these cellulosic fuels that have even lower euroized. And I'm like, there's no way in heck you're going to like transition any of this to cellulosic. Those goals haven't obviously missed targets by a, by a long shot. I give that to my students as basically one of the worst energy policies we've ever kind of come up with. Yeah. And, you know, that's not to say the corn ethanol can't work for anybody that's listening, you know, on a very small scale. If you're Iowa and you want to go for it, go nuts on a local level. But as a renewable nationwide fuel policy, it's kind of insane. But that's kind of the thing. Energy return on investment is a very much a blunt tool. It can show you that something is profitable. It can show you that something is not very profitable. And I think you can discern from those numbers whether it's a good idea or bad idea. And the threshold, and this kind of gets into the weeds a little bit about net energy analysis, but there's this thing called the net energy cliff that Ewan Mearns was the first one to put this actually in a figure, and he published it on the oil drum a bunch of years ago. But I've since published it in my papers in academia, and it's basically shows that as energy return on investment declines, the net energy you get out, right, that's the, the profit energy, what you want, declines as well, but it declines exponentially. So what that means is that if a fuel, like let's say oil declines, the, the energy return on investment of oil declines from 100 to 50, right, the net energy delivered to society only declines by a couple percent, right? right? Same thing from 50 to 20 and same thing from 20 to 10. But as we get below 10, the net energy delivered drops off dramatically, exponentially, in fact. Mm -hmm. So that when you get fuels that differ from 10 to 5, that's a huge difference in the amount of net energy delivered to society when compared to a fuel that is different from 30 to 25. So what's the policy relevance? The policy relevance is that corn ethanol at 1 to 1 should not get any government support, but PV at 10 to 1 probably should. Especially when you look at that chart and you see that when the EROI falls below five, that's the cliff. You know, the, oh, the EROI is. just totally falls off the cliff and it's not worth it producing is. at all. 
And that's where those cellulosic and corn ethanol fuels are. It's that under five. Yeah, they're under five. But you look at tar sands. Tar sands are right there, right? And that's yeah. another fuel that we shouldn't be going after. You know what? And it's really interesting when you get at this because when you look at these fuels, right, all these low UROI fuels, they have all these other things. They all tend to be much more environmentally damaging. You know, I'm not talking about corn ethanol. But you look at look at the capital intensiveness of tar sands, right? I mean, the amount of work that has to go into get a barrel of oil produced from Syncrude. It's, it's an insane amount of environmental damage. Right. And as you have higher EROI fuels, you tend to get it out with less impact. So there's a lot of other knock-on kind of analyses that can be done and correlations that can be made that follow this kind of trend, right, of like declining EROI. And that's really the policy relevance, right, for the U.S., for whomever. is like analyze your fuels. If the energy return on investment is below five or below eight, you have to reassess and you have to look at what's holding it back. So PV was there 10 years ago and say, okay, we have to up the efficiency of panels and we have to make sure that they're strong and they last for 20 years and things like that. And that's what they worked on. And they get them to the point where they are better and the costs of production have gone down so that they can produce them at higher profitabilities. You know, with the oil industry, I, I don't know. It's, with them, it's a, it's a technology geology fight, right? So they're trying to produce technologies to beat the geological depletions. Yeah, from a policy standpoint, there certainly ought to be some recognition. I mean, you know, when, when we go to spend taxpayer dollars on pretty much anything, unless it's strictly research and development budget and we don't care, you know, what the return is, there's always some calculation. You know, there's always a CBO estimate that says, well, we think based on this information that the taxpayer is going to get a reasonable return for their investment when we spend this federal money on this thing. Yeah. Now, that's very standard. But we don't do that when it comes to yeah. energy. And we should. If we're looking at solar, a new solar project delivering an EROI of 10, and we're looking at a new, I don't know, unconventional project or a tar sands project delivering an EROI of 5, Mm-hmm. or a biofuel project delivering an ROI of two. Mm-hmm. It should be pretty clear that that's not something that you want to invest federal money in, or if you have a choice, you should be investing it in the solar that's going to yeah. give you an ROI of 10. Oh, man. And, you know, it's just such a simple thing. I can go on for hours about this. <laughs> I'm, I'm at the point right now, I, I've just gotten here now, but it's like I'm literally at the point where I don't think the federal government should, and this is, may sound extreme, but... I don't think there's a reason right now for the federal government to spend any money on any fossil fuel adventures, subsidizing any part of the industry because the technology for renewable energy is here. It has high enough energy returns. PV and wind both have high enough energy returns. We haven't even talked about megawatts, right? I mean, like we can reduce energy consumption by half just by using it more efficiently at the end user. And I'm not just talking about light bulbs here, but everything, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Industrial processes. And that's Amory Lovins' whole thing. That doesn't get us the whole way, right? Efficiency improvements don't get us the whole way, but it gets us a lot of the way, right? Sure. So, you know, I was ecstatic when when Obama shut down Keystone. And I'm not naive about this. I understand that China's going to want the oil and they're going to develop it if they want to pay for it. Yeah, I get that. But I just don't want the United States doing it. I don't want the, the country that I grew up in that I consider to be the leading nation, right, in the world the world leader here to be investing in that. I think it makes a statement and it's an important one that, you know what, industrialization occurred in the last century. We're now in this century and I think it's time to be investing in renewable energy. And now is the time that we can do it. 
because the energy returns are there. I think it can work. Of course, we have a lot to do with the grid. I get that. But we had a lot to do with the highway system in the 1940s and 50s, and we got that done, right? Yeah, and we built a lot of pipelines to deliver oil and gas, and we built a lot of wires to yeah. you know ship around power that was being generated by coal-fired power plants. Yeah. And, you know. None of this is insurmountable. It's, right. it's incredible. So I think there's added benefits too. I mean, like, what are you talking about when you make that comparison between a shale gas well, a PV facility? Where is that PV facility? Because if it's on someone's rooftop, right, there's minimal environmental impact involved, even if it's on the land, right? And, and almost no additional infrastructure required. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, it's crazy. That's basically where I'm at right now. You know, shale gas, yeah, I understand that we use gas. I understand that, you know, getting us out of the last recession was benefited largely by lower commodity prices that were due to extraction of fossil fuels. I I understand all those things, and I'm glad that we survived the recession the way we did, which was arguably better than most other nations in the world. And I do think that lower oil prices have helped a lot in that, but I think going forward from here, we need to kind of change our focus. Well, Dave, if you were energy secretary of the United States and you had the ability to make a recommendation to the president or to the Congress and say, here's the threshold that I don't think we should invest anything in below this threshold, an EROI threshold, what do you think that threshold would be? Probably be eight. Eight? That's my gut feeling, yeah. Because you have to think about, you know, society requires an energy return, right? We, we only survive off of profit energy from the energy industry, right? Mm-hmm. And the bigger our society gets, the more complex it gets, the higher that EROI must be, right? We have to receive so much of this net energy. So sure. I think that, you know, at a minimum right now, we'd want to look at something that has a, an eight. But, you know, that doesn't mean if a technology is at one that we shouldn't maybe invest in R&D to get that technology going, right? Because everything... As long as there's the prospect of it going up. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. Like PV, we knew that it was like efficiency in panels and manufacturing, wind too, you know, it was like, well, we can design better wind blades. We just need to do this over time. Fusion, (laughs) you know, not so much. Well, eight seems a little low to me, frankly. I mean, could we run a society that has sort of an endless supply of iPhone fart apps and Kardashian entertainment on a EROI of eight? You know, maybe. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) it depends. (laughs) I don't know how many apps there are. But uh, but listen, I can tell you this. If we continue developing the way we are right now, thinking that we're an industrializing world, Mm. right, at least in the developed nations like the U.S. right now, no. Because when you're burning energy like that and your goal is growth, 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 and by growth, I mean growth in products of gross domestic product, that's, that's our goal long term. Right? We just got to keep producing more and more and more stuff. Well, you know, you need really high energy returns for that. But if you want to change the game a little bit and say, you know what, listen, let's focus on smart growth. And I'm saying that to be politically correct because I know like I don't want to get too radical with the ideas of steady state economics and things like that that I think are totally valid. But Dude, I want to do a, an entire episode on that with you later on. Oh, I'd be happy to. I was just teaching about E.F. Schumacher in my class, and he is... Nice. That guy just knocks me out of my chair every time I read his book. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, you know, I mean, it depends what kind of society you want. You want a society like China right now? They need extremely high energy returns because they're all they're doing, they're focused on growth so much, and growth requires energy returns. And this is where the ecology comes in, right? Because... Energy return on investment comes from ecology where that fish that's migrating upstream to access new resources, if it doesn't get more resources from that migration than it got in 
than the energy expended in getting there, then it doesn't survive, right? So that's the idea with society is that we have to get high enough energy returns to pay for our own kind of society metabolism, which is basically just supporting all the houses and people we have already. Right. But to put it all into context, what we have now is this massive society, this enormously complicated society, extremely complex with all sorts of dependencies between different systems. It's very difficult and slow to change. Mm -hmm. And it's all been built and predicated on fuels that get ROIs of 20 to 100. Right. And those numbers are falling rapidly across the board in the fossil fuel segment that it was built on. And we're trying to replace those with renewables that have valid and useful and sustainable, but low. ROIs compared to, you know, the 100 to 1 that we were getting out of oil 100 years ago. Yeah, but they're lower ROIs. But it, again, because of that net energy cliff, because of that exponential curve, it doesn't matter as much as we think. We need the fuels to be high enough. As long as it's over 5. It, well, yeah. I mean, as long as, that's why I said 8. I think yeah. 5 is still maybe a little low. But I mean, the reality is once we get away from corn-based ethanol and tar sands and these really kind of scary low ERI fuels, I think we'll be kind of in the clear. I mean, I mean, sometimes I wonder what kind of society could we run on fuels with an ROI of five? Right. I mean, it is possible we could run some sort of society on low right. ROIs. I mean, I don't think an ROI of five would automatically condemn us to a zombie apocalypse. No, you know? no, 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 it doesn't. And that's the thing. You can't be too pessimistic about it. We don't know what it would do. It'd be leaner and meaner, that's for sure. Yeah, right. You know, so I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. I mean, agrarian societies had ROIs of two, three, five to one, and people weren't necessarily unhappy, right? So sure. anyway, I think that wraps it up. You know, it's, but I am on board for our steady state economics one, man. Whenever right. you want to talk about it, I'm happy to. <laughs> I'm happy to dish. Great, man. I definitely want to talk about that. And, and Dave, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Anytime, man. Seriously. Super. All right. Thanks a bunch. Bye now. That was Dr. David Murphy of St. Lawrence University, sporting a cold but bravely pressing on to speak with us from Canton, New York, which is so far north that's about 20 miles south of the Canadian border. EROI is such a deep and complex subject that one can really only scratch the surface of it within an hour-long interview, and indeed it's been my pleasure and privilege to carry on a conversation about it with Dave for many years now. So I'm very pleased that Dave could join us today and at least begin to cover that aspect of the energy transition puzzle, and we'll definitely have him on again to talk about steady-state economics and the latest in EROI research. Perhaps I could also get Charlie Hall, a mentor to both Dave and me, and a few others to elaborate on EROI studies in a future episode. I think Dave's gut feeling that we could run some sort of reasonably advanced society on fuels with an EROI of 8 is an interesting idea. A previous paper he did with Charlie Hall some years ago suggested that the minimum EROI of society is closer to 10. But that's still in roughly the same ballpark, and as Dave rightly points out, in humanity's agrarian past we ran society on much lower EROIs, in the range of 2 to 4 perhaps, although I haven't seen actual empirical studies that tried to estimate that. Of course, that was at a much lower level of complexity and with a much smaller population on a planet that had a whole lot more available cropland and grazing land per capita than we have now, and so on. So there's another apples and oranges comparison that we should be careful to avoid. But if the question is not, can we run exactly the same society we have today or even a more complex one on fuels with low EROIs, but rather, can we run a reasonably content society of some indeterminate size at some indeterminate point in the distant future on renewables, then I think the answer is yes. So it all depends on the assumptions. 
And now a quick look at some recent news items. The future of the global LNG trade is looking much less certain than it was in recent years. Four years ago, the IEA published a paper proclaiming that a golden age of gas was ahead, thanks to new production from shale gas and a strong trend of fuel switching away from coal and toward natural gas and power generation. Accordingly, major oil and gas companies have invested billions of dollars into projects to liquefy, export, transport, and import LNG around the world. But now the prospects for gas have turned gloomy with prices for landed gas in Asia having plummeted from $15 per million BTU two years ago to less than $7 today, a price that makes LNG exports from the United States to Asia uneconomic. The main reason for the slump, apart from burgeoning supply, will not surprise listeners of this podcast, China's demand is falling. And that country can no longer be counted on to soak up any extra supply. Chinese LNG exports have actually fallen 3.5% over last year, Not a significant number, but certainly not a bullish one either. The risk is now that some Asian power plants will actually switch back to coal, and buyers are increasingly unwilling to sign the long-term import contracts that make expensive LNG facilities in the U.S. viable. So what does this mean for energy transition? It means that the shale gas market is losing a key support, which could result in far less gas production some years from now, making it more difficult to use gas as a so-called bridge fuel in the fight against climate change. But on the positive side, it means that more gas will remain underground in the U.S., which could be either an enormous asset some decades from now if we decide to produce it, or if it is never produced, it would mean lower future emissions. Item 2. U.S. oil prices are perilously close to breaking below the $40 mark for the second time this year, and may even do so by the time this episode airs with growing consensus among traders and pundits that lower prices may be here to stay for longer than anyone expected. While that's certainly possible, in these markets all sorts of irrational things are possible, it would be very bad in the long term because it would further starve investment in future supply, supply that we may very well need and badly, and therefore kick off a new price spike. Longtime oil watchers may very well shake their heads sadly at the latest data. U.S. vehicle miles traveled have hit a series of new all-time highs in recent months, and it looks like 2015 will be a record-setting year for miles traveled. Gasoline consumption is now just 1% below the previous record highs of the pre-recession years. The fuel economy of new vehicles sold in the U.S. stopped improving this year as people went back to buying SUVs and pickup trucks, and it looks like 2015 will also be a record year for auto sales. It now seems clear that the so-called peak demand notion that has been in vogue for the past several years was premature. As I detailed in the study some years ago, the main reason why U.S. demand fell since 2007 was not because people were switching to more efficient vehicles and moving to city centers, but rather because they were tight in the pocketbook and gasoline had become very expensive. With gasoline now selling for less than $2 a gallon in some states and slightly fatter wallets thanks to more people being employed again, gasoline demand is charging back. And vehicle efficiency is standing still in sales-weighted terms. And EVs still have a 0.4% market share. Naturally, cheap gasoline has again brought out a rash of silly and enumerate news stories laughing at the notion of peak oil supply. But when this surging new demand, being structurally baked into the outlook now with all these new low-efficiency vehicles having just been sold, meets up with failing supply some months from now, I truly don't think it will be years, those trends will pass each other with lightning speed and we'll be right back to painful $80 fill-ups again for all those new vehicles. 
Only then, there won't be any new rabbits to pull out of the hat for the frackers, who survived this downturn by squeezing the shale sweet spots dry, and the future of oil supply will again be worrisome. In other words, high prices will again bring peak oil back into vogue. All I can do is shake my head. Just as the poor profitability of ethanol was guaranteed by its low EROI, the prospect of high oil prices after supply and demand peak and decline in the not-too-distant future is also guaranteed, because we simply aren't deploying enough alternatives to prevent it. But understanding these things requires paying just a little bit of attention to, oh, you know, data, math, and charts. And apparently that's just too much to ask, so we will stumble through the price shock to come with no more foresight than we had when it hit us just eight years ago. Well, this episode has gone on quite long enough, so I'll end the news segment there. But I have a feeling that we'll have much more to say about oil prices in upcoming episodes. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.